Well, good evening, Lone Oak First Baptist. It's such a joy to be with you tonight. I am so looking forward to us opening up 1 Timothy chapter 3 together. Uh, less preaching, more teaching tonight as we go verse by verse, word by word through this passage of text. It's incredibly timely for this church. One, this text deals with elders or what we would call pastors. It deals with the qualifications of deacon which is incredibly important right now as you're searching for your next pastor. We need to know what God's Word has to say about the qualifications of your next pastor. And you're about to start the process of selecting deacons for your church. And this will deal with the qualifications, what we should look for in a deacon. And I just want to say before I begin, you all have an absolutely incredible staff of ministers here. I don't know if you realize that. I'm in churches all across our state, and you are so blessed. I've had the chance each Sunday to have lunch with some different ministers in your church. I look forward to having lunch with others. I just spent, uh, I have a great deal of appreciation for them. And you have a great group of deacons. I was just in deacons meeting, and uh, nobody threw anything, nobody cussed, nothing like that. Um, you've got a great godly group of servant leaders there in your church. And so we're thankful for that. So tonight is more of just reminding you what God would have us to do. So let's go to Lord in prayer and ask him to speak to us as we open up his word. Father, I thank you for your goodness. And Lord, I thank you for King Jesus. I thank you for your church. And tonight as we talk about the important aspect of the qualifications for those who are called to service in your body, I pray you just open up our hearts and our minds to hear what your word says. Not what culture says, not what uh, cousin says, not what uh, the TV says, but God, what your word says. And I pray you would speak to us in a mighty way, Lord. Speak to me. Give me your message for your people, for your glory's sake. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Well, you can't do a message about deacons without including at least one corny deacon joke. And so I'm going to get mine out of the way early, so we go on and check that box off the bingo card, and, and we move on. You've heard those jokes, haven't you? Everybody's got a joke about a group of deacons. Well, this one I'll share is kind of your typical deacon joke story. A city boy named Kenny moved into the country and bought a donkey from an old farmer for $100. The farmer agreed to deliver the donkey the next day, and the next day the farmer drove up and said, Sorry, son, but I've got your bad news. The donkey's died. And Kenny replied, well, can I just have my money back? And the farmer says, no, I can't do that. I already spent it. And Kenny said, well, just unload the donkey then. The farmer asked, what are you going to do with the dead donkey? He says, well, I'm going to raffle him off. Raffle him off? You can't raffle off a dead donkey. Sure I can. Well, a month later, the farmer met up with Kenny and asked, so whatever happened with that dead donkey? So I raffled him off. I sold 500 tickets for $2 a piece. Made a profit of $900. Well, did anybody complain? Well, just the guy that won, and I gave him his money back. Well, don't you feel bad about that? Sure, I felt bad. I, went to I felt so bad, I went to church, and I confessed it to the pastor what I had done. And what did the pastor do? Well, he made me a deacon. The corny church jokes are rampant about some unscrupulous person who is given the role of deacon or some pastor who uh, is tight or miserly or wants something from his church. But that's certainly not the picture of deacons in Scripture. It's certainly not the picture of deacons and elders 
pastors, ministers in Lone Oak First Baptist Church. And so today we're going to look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. I'm just picking up where Hank left off last time that you were looking at this, uh, going through the passage. You ended at the end of chapter 2, and today we pick up at the beginning of chapter 3. I'll be reading from the CSB version, uh, but you're welcome to use any version uh, you like um, well, any biblical version that you would like uh, this, this evening. You know, it's interesting because this is an important topic right now in Southern Baptist culture. Who qualifies for the role of elder in our uh, churches? And Southern Baptist Convention's Baptist Faith and Message says that there's two offices in the church, pastor and deacon. And here in these scriptures, we see those qualifications that Paul gives us for those people. But before we look at the qualifications, I want us to step back and look at what in the world do elders and deacons even do? So before we look at what, who can be an elder or deacon, I want us to take just a quick uh, rabbit trail back to Acts chapter 6 that gives us the first pattern for what elders and deacons do. Now, we don't see them necessarily called deacons and elders in Acts 6. So some would say these were the first deacons. Some would say they're just precursors to the deacons. Regardless, they give us an incredible pattern for the role of pastors and deacons. So in Acts chapter 6, uh, here's, here's what it says. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Procurius, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So we're about five years after the ascension of Jesus and this, the church is experiencing monumental growth. And with that came administrative difficulties. The church was very concerned about widows. And they instituted a thing where they would care for widows by providing a daily distribution of bread to all their widows. And a total side note, but um, sometimes as a church, we can, we have, in some senses, we've given that role over to the government, over to social agencies, when really in the Bible originally was the role of the church. And so there's some little bit of conflict because you have two groups. You've got the Hebrews and the Greeks. The Hellenistic are the Greeks, and you have the Hebrews are the Jewish people. And the people who are Greek are feeling like we're not getting our food. And when mama's not happy, nobody's happy. The widows are upset. We're not getting it. And the, the, uh, the apostles, who I think are precursors to our, the pastors, if you will, in, in this passage, they're saying this is an important issue. We need to care about, but if we tackle this issue, it means we've got to stop preaching the word of God. We've got to stop evangelism. We've got to stop our times of prayer 
and studying the word and preaching the word if we're going to tackle this great task of caring for the widows. And they said, we don't want to forsake the ministry of the word, prayer and preaching for the important role of caring for the widows. And so they said, choose seven men from among you who are full of the Holy Spirit. And we'll turn this responsibility over to them to care for people in our community. And so that's what they did. They, they chose seven men. The names here are all Greek names. So they're, they're wise enough to say, we're going to choose Greek men to serve these uh, Greek people, these Greek widows. It was not a popularity contest. It wasn't just a democratic vote. It was a, let's seek out and see who are the best people. You know, some churches, the way we choose uh, deacons is by just popularity. And so oftentimes we have a lot of deacons that are like 55 to 75 years old because that's who everybody knows. But what about the deacon who's 28 years old or 30 years old? And so sometimes we have to uh, think through that process. How can we have a diversity of deacons that represent different age groups, different ministries in the church? And sometimes that's not always the popular vote. Sometimes that's having discernment about making sure we select some people to, from, a, from a, wide, uh, a wide spread. So they choose these seven men uh, who are known to be spiritually mature. They're wise in decision making. Um, they, return, they turn this responsibility over to them. And what Satan is trying to do is trying to distract the church. He's trying to take the, the ministers away from preaching the Bible and give them a task. You know, sometimes the busyness of the church can get in the way of the business of the church. And what happens here, because of this process, you'll see there in verse 6 and 7, they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Because the church empowered ministers to do what ministers do and empowered deacons to do what deacons do, empowered ministers to lead and preach and empowered deacons to serve and love, it created church growth. And Satan's plan to bring the vision of the church was thwarted because God gave this vision to the early church in Acts chapter 6. And so that's where we come to 1 Timothy chapter 3. In the church we have two roles pastor and deacon in, in the Baptist church. That's what our Baptist faith, the message says. And the question is, who should serve in those roles? Who's qualified to serve in those roles? Well, let's start off. Uh, this is 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to deal with elders first. This is verses 1 through 7. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble work. An overseer, therefore, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not greedy. He must manage his own, his own household competently and have his children under control with all dignity. If anyone does not know how to manage his household, how will he take care of God's church? He must not be a new convert or he might become conceited and incur the same condemnation as the devil. Furthermore, he must have a good reputation among outsiders so that he does not fall into disgrace and the devil's trap. So here we see, the, as the passage starts off, 
this word. This is a trustworthy saying. If anyone aspires to be an overseer, your Bible you're looking at right now may use a different word. How many of your Bibles right there in 1 Timothy 3 uses the word overseer? Okay. How many of your Bibles use the word bishop? Okay. What about the word elder? Okay. A couple. So those are all synonymous names. It's the Greek word episcopae. It's where we get the Episcopal Church, where they get their name from. It means the leader of the church. And it can be translated bishop, elder, or overseer. In fact, the very first Baptist faith and message written in 1925 does not say anything about the word pastor. It, says, it uses bishop, elder. Uh, that the role of the church is the bishop, elder, or the, the deacon. So why do we call them pastors? That's a great question. Because the word pastor, it would be really technical, episcopate does not mean pastor. Bishop, elder, overseer is the translation for episcopate. Well, the reason we use pastor, and you know, 1925, the First Baptist Faith and Message did not use pastor. But if you look over in Acts 20, I'm not going to go there in my Bible, but you're welcome to if you like. It, says, it talks about the elders, and it says elders are um, taking on the role of shepherding the flock well. And that word shepherding there means pastoring. It's, it translates pastoring. So basically it's saying that one of the duties of the elders is, by, is pastoring the flock, is shepherding the flock. And over years we uh, made pastor synonymous with elder, bishop, overseer. It can be confusing at times, but it's, and I'm convinced it's the same office. Pastor, elder, bishop, overseer. In fact, our new Baptist Faith and Message says um, there's two offices, pastor slash elder slash overseer, I believe is what it says. Is that correct? Yeah. Uh, or the, putting them in the same term. But there are some groups, I just want to, listen, when I teach, I'm fair to give all sides, okay? And you're smart people, you can decide. I'll give you my opinion, but I'll give you all sides. There are some that would say that the role of pastor, since episcopate cannot be, is not directly translated as bishop, elder, overseer, that the role of pastoring can be a gift in the church and that a person can shepherd people without being the bishop. And so there's a group of people that would say that a, um, um, somebody can pastor a group of senior adults or pastor a group of children or pastor a group of youth. They're shepherding them, but they're not the same as an elder. By and large, Southern Baptists, say that pastor, elder, bishop, overseer are all the same, the same office. But I want you to know there is at least that argument um, out there uh, with that. So it's talking about pastoring the flock, elders. And this is incredibly important. Who do you choose as your next pastor? Character is important. You know, the New Testament puts much more emphasis on the character of the pastor than it does the gift of the pastor. Oftentimes we pick a pastor because he can do what really well? Preach. And no doubt you're going to, um, whenever God calls a new pastor here, you'll get a chance to hear him preach. My guess is when his name's announced, you'll go Google his services and you'll hear him preach online and hear him preach in person because that's very important, right? But if you look at this list of 15 things that Paul gives the only thing that has to do with gifting is the, the word teach. The other 14 things have nothing to do with his gift. It has to do with his character. And so character in our ministers, character in our pastors is incredibly important. 
Let me say before I go on this, this word elder, I'll use the word elder a lot, not because I'm, I've never been at a church that ever used the term elder, but um, that's, the, that's the vocabulary that's used here in the text. Churches have interpreted this different way. Like, for example, um, many Baptist churches employ what's called a single elder model. And what that means is they see the elder, at the, what we would call the senior pastor. And he's, he's the, so my the thing is, who needs to follow these qualifications? Some would say it's just the senior pastor. He's the single elder of the church. And that's why, especially like back in the 60s and 70s, it was very popular that you would have a senior pastor. And then you would have a minister of music, a minister of youth, a minister of children. You know, all these titles minister, but they didn't have the word pastor. Make sense? So you had a single elder and then everybody else. Other churches, a little more, well, a little old, really old, long time ago, and then more modern here in the last 20 years, have moved to a plurality of elders where they have a a group of men who are the elders of the church. They're both ministerial staff and then they're also lay people uh, who are the leaders of the church and elder in, in that sense. In some churches, the deacons work as the de facto elders, we misnamed them, but they work as the elders as they lead the church. Remember I said the elders are preaching, teaching, leading. The deacons are serving, caring, loving, meeting those um, needs. Some churches consider um, any ministerial staff member. So when you have your staff, um, you know, the men in your church who are serving, leading, loving your church family that they would be qualified as pastors under this list. So that's who all uh, this is qualified for. So plenty of guys are gifted speakers, but not always have the qualifications of this character. Gosh, I was talking to a guy recently who had been a, um, a minister, not the senior pastor, but been a minister in a church of several thousand people. And the church just was falling apart. And he talked about how the senior pastor, they had hired a new senior pastor, and how he was an incredible preacher. I mean, this guy could shuck the corn. I mean, he was good. But behind the scenes, they used words like spiritual abuse, anger, jealousy, pride, envy, backbiting. Maybe you've been in a church like that. Where people see on a Sunday morning, they think, well, if he's a good preacher, he must be a good Christian. Folks, that's not always the case. Just because you're a good speaker doesn't mean that you're following the, the, in obedience to God's word. And so it's important that we look not just at gifting, but of character. You know, the other thing, and I'm sorry, I'll get, this will go a lot faster in just a second. It's important in a church for this because if a bank teller at your bank has a moral failure, goes through a divorce, uh, and horrible things happen. That's horrible. Like That's horrible. That's horrible for the person. But it doesn't affect the bank that much, does it? I mean, they keep their job oftentimes. It may affect morale a little bit in their job. But in a church, if your pastor went through an affair, got a divorce, fell away from the faith, it'd rip a church apart. So it's very important that we look at the character of those who are called. So what are some of those characteristics? He says this, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be an overseer, he he desires a noble work. He's basically saying, don't be afraid of leadership. Don't be afraid of saying, hey, I want to serve. I feel like God's calling me uh, to the pastorate. And overseer, verse two, therefore must be above reproach. That means he must be at a level above what anyone could ever claim. 
uh, that, that they had done something wrong. I remember one time I wrote, I think, the smallest check ever our church had received. $2.07 to the church I pastored. Reason was my wife and I went on a trip and they had a policy that the church would pay for my expenses on the trip, but my wife would pay for her own expenses on the trip, right? So we go out to a restaurant and I found out later the waiter accidentally put her drink on my order. $1.89 with the tax, it was like two oh seven. And I felt convicted. I was like, the church paid for my wife's Diet Coke. Would the church been glad to pay for my wife's Diet Coke? Of course they would have been glad to pay for my wife's Diet Coke. No one would even have known the church didn't pay for my wife's, the, the church paid for my wife's Diet Coke. But I wanted to be above reproach and I wanted to be able to say, I've never done anything fiscally irresponsible, anything wrong that you've not approved. And so I wrote the church a check for $2.07 to pay back for her Diet Coke because I wanted to be above reproach. And ministers, pastors, should handle their life so that no one can make a qualified claim against them or their life. And so then Paul goes to what does a person, this is what I think he's doing, what does a person who lives their life above reproach, what does that mean? What are the qualities of someone who lives above reproach? And here's what he says. The overseer therefore must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. Now, let me just say this very clearly. All the language in this section about elders is male language. The elder, the Bible says, I'm sorry if you've been in other traditions where it's different, but the Bible clearly says the role of elder is reserved for males. The role of pastor is reserved for males. Now, this is a hot topic in Southern Baptist life right now. Can women have the title pastor? And Southern Baptist Convention just recently removed some churches because they truly had a woman senior pastor. Our Baptist Faith Message, um, back in 19, I think it was the 63 version, did not say the gender of the pastor. It was added in, in the year uh, 2000. Um, and so some of those are clear-cut cases, but the case that's more difficult is a church that has the single elder model that clearly has a male senior pastor but they hire a 23-year-old girl to be a youth pastor, and they use the term very generically. So we as a convention have to decide how do we handle those situations. If a church, the, the girl's not leading the church. If they said, who's your pastor? They say, oh, he's the pastor. But they have a nomenclature problem where they hook the name pastor to this female youth pastor or female children's pastor. Um, and the question is, can we as Southern Baptists cooperate with churches like that. And so that's the hot topic right now in Southern Baptist life. We'll vote it on in New Orleans. We'll be voted on it again in Indianapolis. If you want to know my personal opinions, I'll share with you later about that. But that's the, the kind of the topic that, that's being addressed right now uh, in, in our culture. So the role of pastor, the role of elder listed here is reserved for, for males only. The husband of but one wife. Now we see this both in the elder section and in the deacon section. It literally means a one woman man. So what in the world does that mean? A one-woman man. Well, there's four interpretations. Some say it means um, that you must be married, that the, hus the husband of one wife, that's what some people say, must be married. Some people would say that it outlaws polygamy. That's option B. Option C is it's saying uh, that the husband must have only had one wife his entire life. 
And option D is the husband only has one wife at this current time. So those are the four options. And just a quick word on each of those options. The first one, that the uh, husband uh, must have one wife. I was talking to a search committee at a church in our state. One of the members of the search committee called me and said, hey, we're interviewing a pastor who's not married. Doesn't scripture say we can't hire a pastor unless he's married? And there's some churches, maybe, you, maybe even some of you here would feel that way, that the pastor must be married because it says the pastor is the husband of one wife. But if you take that, the very wooden approach to say the husband must be married, you have to go down a little bit further and say the, husband, the, the man must also have two or more children. Because it says later, it uh, talks about him caring for his children well. So if we're going to be fair, if you're going to say he must be married, he must also have two or more children. So that's some people's approach to that, that the husband of one wife is a requirement. You must be married, and you would then, therefore, have to have two children. Some would be that this outlaws polygamy. As you know, in the ancient times, polygamy was more widespread. Certainly in the Old Testament, not as much in the New Testament, but certainly in the Old Testament, so he's outlawing that. Third, some people would say that this means that he cannot be married to one woman in his entire life. And so you remember when Jesus said uh, in Luke, I believe it's chapter 16, that anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman has committed adultery. Even one who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And so the thought is there that if a man's committing adultery, that he cannot um, be eligible to be pastor because he still is married to his previous uh, spouse. Even uh, they would go, that group would say that a person who has had their wife passed away, um, that they're disqualified if they got remarried because they had more than one wife in their lifetime. The fourth option is it talks about, it's present tense, that it means uh, one wife right now. That literally I'm a one woman man, I'm, the person's married to one woman. And we see the support for that as you look in um, several passages of Scripture where Paul encourages people who have been divorced to get remarried. Uh, we see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We see this in Romans chapter 7 verse 2 that a woman is eligible to be remarried if her husband has divorced her. Jesus gave the exception for divorce saying that if divorce was caused by adultery, the woman and man are released from that marriage and they're free to marry again. Paul says if you've been deserted by an unbelieving spouse, then you can be remarried again. And so folks that are in that camp would say that since Jesus gave an exception, that if the person has been divorced by adultery or if the person has been divorced by um, an unbelieving spouse left them and chose not to be married, then that person, if they choose to marry again, is still eligible to serve in the role of pastor or, or deacon. So those are the four options. And every church can make their own decision about which of those four options the church would, would hold. So an overseer, therefore, must be above reproach, must be the husband of one wife, must be a one-woman man, must be self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable, and able to teach. Basically, he's saying that, that he's, he's self-controlled. He's not addicted to things. He doesn't make, he's not boneheaded decisions. Uh, people respect him. He's welcoming to people. He must be able to teach. Titus chapter 1 talks about this. Basically, it's saying that he does not have any behaviors that disqualify his teaching. You know those people, you remember maybe parents said, uh, do what I say, not as I do. Basically, a pastor that lives by that mentality shouldn't be the pastor. Because sometimes his conduct contradicts his message. 
And Paul's saying if his conduct contradicts his message, that he should not be serving in the role of elder, pastor, bishop, overseer. Verse 3, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not greedy. Basically, you don't want to hire a drunk. So evidently this was a problem in the church at one point. You don't want to hire someone who's greedy, not someone who loves money. It's kind of like, hey, do you know George? Yeah, I know George. He's at the bar every day at 1130. He gets in his spot over there at the end of the bar, and he's always ordering the same drink and fixated on the TV. He's not even really watching the TV show. He's watching the ticker tape along the bottom looking at how his stocks are doing. And the only way you can keep him away from watching this stocks is if you, he always loves a good fight. So if you get in an argument with him, he'll quarrel with you. And every once in a while, George is known to scrap. If he gets really upset, he'll throw a head up against a wall every once in a while. Why you ask? Oh, we're thinking about him becoming a pastor at our church. Like that's what Paul's saying. Those guys are disqualified from ministry. That character is disqualified from ministry. That they must have contentment, not greed. Not controlled by money, not controlled by alcohol. Verse 4, he must manage his household competently and have his children under control with all dignity. If anyone does not know how to manage his own household, he, how will he take care of God's church? There is not a minister in America that's not interviewed at a, for a job and just pray, Dear Lord, let my kids behave. I remember I was at a church interviewing for the position. I'm in the pastor's house. It's like the last step. And I've got an 18-month-old. And I'm just praying, dear Jesus, please let him just take a nap or something. And he starts running laps. Every house has got like that lap, you know, like the island or maybe it's a hallway the way it's organized. And my son was wearing it out. And I didn't know what to do. And I thought, there, here it goes. Guess I'm not getting this job. Thankfully, I got the job. They were, they were compassionate. But every pastor struggles with that. It doesn't mean we're going to be perfect. You know, perfection is not the, not the goal here. Which means we're a good parent. We're sensible. That we want our kids to be in church. That we discipline our kids. But our kids aren't perfect. You ever met those kids before? They're almost like robots because their parents have just like been so hard because their kids can't make a mistake. That's not what Paul's talking about here. So let's give our ministers some grace. But it's saying that we're going to do two things. We're going to love our wife with all of our heart. And we're going to be good dads to our kids. That's what we're looking for. Qualifications for a, for a pastor. Verse 6, he must not be a new convert or he might become conceited and incur the same condemnation as, a, as the devil. Why not a recent convert? Well, his head gets inflated. Well, look at me. It's kind of like you, if you just started in the army and they give you the rank general. You don't know what you're doing, but everybody's got to salute you, you know? You're like, man, we can't even find a hat that fits you. Your head's gotten so big here. And it says the same as the devil. The devil fell into this pride. You, you know from, from Scripture, falling from heaven because of the pride that, that Satan had. That, um, that, that if a, we, have, we make someone quickly, they're saved and they immediately become a pastor, they may think too highly of them themselves. Verse 7, furthermore, he must have a good reputation among outsiders so that he does not fall into the uh, disgrace and the devil's trap. Basically, it means if you go down the street and you go down, I don't know what street it is in Paducah, but down by the, the flood wall, you got all those little shops there and the antique store and the candy store. And you're going in and out of the shops and you're like, hey, you, you met Doug. 
Like, what are people going to say about Doug? And if they say really good things about Doug, then you know, hey, he's got a good reputation in the community. But they think really bad things about Doug. Like, man, I don't know that that's the person you want being your pastor. So sometimes we have these unrealistic expectations for pastors. Let's not establish standards the Bible doesn't establish. Pastors are not going to be perfect, but they're going to seek to lead and love your church uh, well. And so that's what Paul has to say about the role of, of elder. And let's be clear. These are the people that are teaching and leading in the church, the role of pastor. Some churches may have one person in that role. Some churches may have a plurality of elders. Some people may, some churches may have a, a pastoral staff, and different churches approach it a different way, and um, your church makes your decision. So then he moves on to deacons. So he talks about first the one the group that's in charge of leading the church spiritually. And now he moves to the group that is in charge of serving the church. The relationship between elder and deacons, uh, pastors and deacons, means that, as I said before, pastors are in charge of the spiritual leadership of the church. And deacons are tasked with the physical and care for the church. You see here in verse 8, here's what it says. Deacons likewise... Now, that word likewise is really important because the way it's used in Greek is it's showing a separation. He's saying, here's elders. Secondly, here's deacons. That they have some similarities, but they're different. That's the the way the Greek word, and that's important because you're going to see that word appear here in just a few verses. So he's saying that the elders and deacons are separate. And so sometimes, especially like the, the church I grew up in, the deacons operated as elders. Like nothing happened unless the deacon said so. Like they were over the pastor is the way it worked in the church I grew up in. That was a bad name. They weren't deacons. They were elders at that point. They were overseers. They were bishops. And so some, sometimes the Baptist churches, we can morph into, uh, into that. But deacons likewise, since it's a separate group, should be worthy of respect, not hypocritical, not drinking a lot of wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. They must also be tested first. If they prove blameless, then they can serve as deacons. Wives, likewise, should be worthy of respect, not slanderers, self-controlled, faithful in everything. Deacons are to be husbands of one wife, managing their children and their households competently. For those who have served well as deacons acquire a good standing for themselves and great boldness in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. The word here for deacon is the Greek word. You've, I'm, I know you've heard Pastor Dan talk about this, but uh, diakonos or diakonoi is the, the noun there, that they are servants. And throughout the Bible, that Greek word, if it's talking about like in a proper noun form, it's translated deacons. If it's talking about just in the generic form or the, or the verb form, it's translated servant or serve. Like when Jesus washes the feet of his disciples and he says, no servant is greater than his master. He said, no deacon. No, diakonoi. No, diakonos is, is greater than his, his master. So if deacons are leading the church instead of serving the church, they are no longer deacons. They're elders. That's important for us to, to, to grasp. Now, they have some very similar qualifications, but a few different qualifications. Let's look at some of these. There's a close similarity we, should, we would expect them to be similar because God wants qualified people who love him serving uh, in his church. And so some of these are very uh, much the same, but a few changes. Like one, it says, should be worthy of respect. Some of you may be using the King James Bible. Is anybody using the King James 
or the New King James, does, does it, what word does it use there? Is it reverent, I believe? Okay, yeah, I, I see a couple of head nods. Reverent. Uh, some others mean, uh, some old versions say grave. Basically means they take their job seriously. That being a deacon is no like just fluffy matter. It's a serious matter. The church has set you apart because of your great service and love for the body. And so we take that seriously. It's not a jokey matter. It's, hey, we respect them and they're worthy respect and they take their job. They take their job very seriously. Deacons, likewise, should be worthy of respect, not hypocritical. It means that they're sincere, that, that they are not saying one thing to one person and another thing to somebody else. They're not speaking out of both sides of their mouth. They're sincere. Not drinking a lot of wine means they're sober. They're not a drunkard. Not greedy for money means they're satisfied. They're satisfied and content with what God has given them. Holding the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, it means they have sound theology. That they don't compromise on deep, important biblical truths. He says that they must be secure in the faith. Here's what he says. They must also be tested first, and if proved blameless, then they can serve as deacons. That they're secure. You see what a man believes when he's rattled and his faith rises to the top. So they are sober, they're sincere, they're satisfied, they have sound theology, they're secure in the faith. Then we come to verse 11, and that's a verse that's been a lot of, of um, church fights have happened over verse 11. Here's what it says in the CSB. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Now, the second word in that sentence, their wives. How many of your Bible you're looking at right now uses the word wives? Okay. How many of your Bibles uses the word women? Okay, so about 50-50. Why do some Bibles say wives and other Bibles say women? Because they're the same word. Gynaco, it's the word we get gynecologists from is the word that's used there. And sometimes in the Bible it's, it's interpreted wives. Sometimes in the Bible it's interpreted women. In fact, if you go to 1 Timothy chapter 2, every time it's mentioned it's interpreted women. If you look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 2, verse 12, verse 14, you look over in chapter 5, you look in Titus chapter 1. In those cases it's interpreted as wives. So what's he talking about? Is he talking about female deacons? Or is he talking about the wives of deacons? To further complex it, we, talk, we hear about Phoebe being called a deaconess, a servant. So the question is, can women serve as deacons? Well, there's three lines of thought. Some believe, yes, that female deacons are on par with men deacons. That this verse says women, women, it's just given another classification, and that women can serve as deacons. Second group believes that females assist the deacons. And third group is it's talking about the wives of deacons. Now, I don't believe the first one, A, is, is, has any credence. I don't believe that it's saying that women uh, serve on equal as men as deacons. Now, some Baptist churches do. In fact, our Baptist faith and message does not say anything about the gender of deacons. It gives 
uh, leeway for some churches to have women deacons while other churches do not have women deacons. But the reason I don't think he's saying women deacons is twofold. One is the word likewise. Remember that word we talked about a minute ago? It comes up again. The word likewise, it separated elders from deacons. Saying that these, they have some similarities, but they're completely different offices. When we see that word pop up here again in verse, whatever verse that is, verse 11, the wives likewise, it's saying they're a separate group than the deacons. You've got these elders likewise, you've got the deacons likewise, you've got this group of women. Saying that there's a separation, there's some similarities, but they're clearly separated. Secondly, Paul does not use the female term for servant that he could have used if he was talking about a female deacon. He uses the, the male term uh, throughout this, uh, this passage. So I, don't think it's, I don't think it's A, although some would disagree and some churches certainly uh, would have a woman deacons. So as far as B or C, are these females that are serving to assist deacons or are they wives of deacons? Well, I think probably C is better than B that is talking about wives of deacons primarily because the context. That's how you have to figure out um, Ganoke to figure out if it's woman or wives. And throughout chapter 3, every time it's clearly talking about wives. And I think Paul is, is relying on that to say that these are the wives of the, uh, uh, of the deacons. That it's not just some subset that's assisting, but it's actually the wives of the deacons. So the good question is this. Why does it say anything about the wives of the pastors? Did you notice that? It's saying, hey, we've got qualifications for the wife of a deacon. But there's no qualifications for the wife of the pastor. Why? Some would even say, isn't it more important that the wife of a pastor has certain qualifications than it is for the wife of a deacon? Now, we've tried to elevate offices. The Bible doesn't do that. It puts deacons and elders on par. Now, as it checks and balances, we're not talking about the Senate and the House but they have different functions. One's leading, one's serving. One's teaching, one's caring. Why does it say about the, the role of the wives, the characteristics of the wife with elders? And here's why. The wife will be involved in the diaconal ministry of her husband. I mean, how many of you deacons in here who have ever served as a deacon have said, hey, my wife and I are going to come visit you. And your wife, ladies, you've served an important role in the life of your husband in his role as a deacon. Hey, honey, I think I'm going to make a jam cake and take it over to Susan. She's on your deacon list and we're going to go love on her. And because generally women are, frankly, much better at serving and loving and caring than sometimes men are, the wife is oftentimes a partner in her husband's diaconate ministry. And so Paul's saying if she's going to be a partner in ministry, we need to make sure she meets some qualifications. And here's the qualifications. She's not going to be a slanderous. Um, she's going to be sober-minded. She's going to be faithful in all things. She's going to be dignified. But why isn't that listed on their pastor? And here's why. Because the wife does not share the elder responsibility of her husband for pastors. The wife does not, serve, does not carry the pastoral responsibility in the same way that her husband does. Like when Dan Sumlin was your pastor, Dan was your pastor. Eileen wasn't the first lady. She wasn't like the co-pastor, right? Dan was the pastor. 
and your characteristics were about what Dan, Eileen was his wife. And a wonderful wife, a godly wife. And you want godly, you want, you want to find a man who made wise decisions about who he marries. But the woman, the wife is not helping to lead the church in the way that the deacon's wife is helping to carry out the role of a deacon. Does that make sense? Maybe it makes sense. If not, then talk to me later and we'll try to make, see if that makes sense. So I think he's talking about the wives of, of deacons uh, here. Um, verse 12, let deacons each be the husband of one wife. We've already talked about that with elders. Same thing here. Four different interpretations. Literally, it means a one woman man. Uh, whether that is saying you have to be married or whether that's saying no polygamy or whether that's saying you can only be married to one person in your entire life or whether it's saying you're only married to one person right now. Whichever that for, it's the same for elders as deacons. Managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So I think every time we open up God's word, we need to ask this question. What's this say about the gospel? I think here's what it says. I think one, I'm going to be very short. That Jesus is our leader. The Bible says he is the good shepherd. He's the good pastor is what that could be translated as. He's the great pastor. And just as you have a pastor leading a church, he's a model of Christ that leads all of us. And just as the church serves under the leadership of, of the pastor, we serve, all of us serve under the lordship of Jesus, who is the good shepherd. Secondly, I think it shows us the nature of Christ in his willingness to be the servant. You remember Isaiah 53, it talks about the suffering, what? Servant. Jesus said himself, the son of man did not come to be served, but what? To serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so Jesus has both the qualifications of a pastor and the qualifications of a deacon. He's both the shepherd and the server. He's both the one who leads and he's the one who cares. And I'm reminded we can't leave here without looking at Philippians chapter 2. It gives us a picture of Christ's humility and his service. It says this, Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant." Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the God, to the glory of God the Father. That Jesus the shepherd served us. By giving his life so we would find glory in the Father. And when you choose a pastor, you choose a pastor who's going to lead you like Jesus leads. When you choose a deacon, you're choosing a deacon who's going to serve you like Jesus serves. So that our church models our great and wonderful Savior. Let's pray. Father, I know this is a great calling, a great task. And Lord, I pray in the name of Christ you help us to uphold that commitment. God, for all the 
the pastors in this room, the ministers in this room, I pray, God, that you help them um, as they seek to fulfill these qualifications found in Scripture. Thank you for blessing this church with such wonderful, godly ministers. And Lord, we pray for the deacons and the deacon wives in this room who have so faithfully served the church and are ongoing servants of this body. Lord, I pray you encourage them, give them endurance, and give them a heart of humility as they serve this body. Lord, and for all of us who are not ministers and not pastors and not deacons, Lord, there's still a call for us to be under your lordship, under your, sir, under your uh, teaching, your leadership, and for us to seek to serve our brothers and sisters in need. Help us in that great task. Help us to choose wise. Help us to wisely choose pastors and deacons who will lead our church well. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.